Jack Spiritual with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is July 25th, 2013. This is episode 1172 of the Survival Podcast, and I got an awesome one for you today. I've got a subject we've never covered before. Today we're going to talk about urban logging. What the heck is urban logging? Well, urban logging is, ugh, I'm not going to tell you. I'll tell you in just a bit when we bring on our guest today, Aaron Etch. Some of you already know him. You know him from the blog and the forum under the handle of Barn Geek. It's going to be a great interview. Before I bring Aaron on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sawtooth Tactical is our sponsor of the day number one today. Sawtooth Tactical has all the stuff you need to live that tactic, cool lifestyle. Magpul magazines, Magpedition bags, everything in between, the awesome, the kick-ass, titanium, manly spork. And yeah, I'm just playing with that one, but it is kind of cool. The titanium spork is a huge, you might want to buy that as an investment in titanium. If you see the size of that thing, and it's a very functional tool as well. But seriously, anything that you can think of, SawTac has it at SawTac.com. Remember, if you are a member support brigade member, to make sure you go to the benefits section of the member support brigade before you order from SawTac, because they do give you a discount. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. Let's say you want to make a knife. Say you've never made a knife before. Let's say you have no flipping idea how to make a knife. You could sit there and look at a piece of metal and go, I don't know how to make a knife out of that. Well, you can go over to knifekits.com. You can get a kit knife, and you can pick out some handle material and stuff like that. You can get a book or a DVD or both if you need some help with how to actually go about doing it. If you really don't know what you're doing at all, you can pick up the phone and call them, and they'll help you figure out what you need to buy and how you can get started. And even the most novice among us can make a really cool, personalized knife that's something that we've built our way. That's awesome, and it's not very expensive to do, and now you have a new skill. Let's say you're like, I make knives all the time. I'm a professional knife maker. I'm a master bladesmith. Well, how about this? You want buffalo horn, mammoth tusk? Damascus steel, some of the most awesome and exotic steel and handle materials that are available out there. You want Kydex kits to make your, your sheaths, halters with for, for knives, guns, anything. Whatever you're looking for, knifekits.com has it. From the master to the apprentice to the complete newbie, you'll find what you're looking for at knifekits.com. And again, they also do a discount for MSB members. So before you place your order, log in and use that discount code. That's how that membership will pay for itself. Next up, I want to remind you guys about the Walking to Freedom Forum. Please get on over there. That forum is really heating up, man. We have got great discussions, people actually doing it, people actually figuring out where's a better place to live than some of these states that are so oppressive, saying goodbye to their old states, hello to their new states, making connections, finding people to help them move. And again, if you're like, I live in Georgia, or I live in Washington State, or I live in Oregon, and we're not on the naughty list yet, um, but, but wherever I live, I'm really happy and I love it here. Great. Get over there anyway. Get in your state-level board and help people who are considering your state figure out if it's right for them. Don't sit around and go, well, all these people move here from California and screw it up. Make sure that the people that move are experiencing a good match when they move. This is kind of a support group. For libertarians that are tired of oppression, we know, we absolutely know that no state in this republic 
is free from oppression. But we also know some are far worse than others. And a way to send a message to all of them is to leave the most oppressive for the, for the least oppressive and put our time and talent there. That is the last action of voting in a republic, voting with your feet. Check it out, walkingtofreedom.com. We need you there. Whether you're going to be a mover or a stayer, doesn't matter. Uh, last but not least, do want to remind you about that member support brigade. This is what you should do if you're interested in joining. Go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members. You'll find out all about it or look for the member support brigade banner, uh, in one of the, uh, in one of the columns on the right and click on that. You'll learn all about it and consider joining. Why should you join? If you join, you'll support my show at 18.3 cents an episode. That's you know, one reason to join. But I never wanted it to be about charity and support. I really wanted it to be about value. So inside that member support brigade, there's almost $200 worth of ebooks that are all free for download immediately. I've got new benefits coming next week, including some things like I just said. Some new stuff that's going to be downloadable. You keep it forever. Uh, $49 value being added just next week. Uh, discounts to over 40 vendors that are in there. And I keep adding new discounts. I've been working on getting some new ones for you with some uh, really awesome new seed companies I've been finding with a lot of research I've been doing thanks to my experience with Dave Jackie. But some of them seem to be small businesses and don't comprehend the basic simple concept of discount permanent exclusive group of people. So I'm working on that for you. But I'm going to continue to improve the value there. And basically, it's 50 bucks a year. And if you're buying stuff from homesteading stuff to gardening stuff to gear and tactical stuff uh, to long-term food storage to things to process your own, if you're buying stuff in the whole self-sufficiency, self-reliance world, a little bit here and there every year anyway, this membership pays for itself. In fact, it's a profitable membership to have. That's why you should consider joining the Member Support Brigade because you'll not only support the show, but hell, you'll get your investment back. Uh, with that, I am ready to get into the main topic of today's show. And today what we're going to talk about again is urban logging. What is urban logging? Urban logging is not going to tell you. Our special guest will tell you here in just a second. And with that, hey, Aaron, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. And folks, with that, I want to say, hey, Aaron, man, welcome to the uh, Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having me on. Hey, I, you know, when I got your... Uh, application. I, I didn't really know you by your name, but then I saw your address at barngeek.com, and I'm like, that guy comments on the blog all the time, so uh, yeah, you've been a part of this community for quite a while, um, but a lot of people still may not know really who you are and uh, why we're having you on for this topic today about chainsaws and timbers and urban logging, so you, can you kind of tell people about your background and uh, you know how you got into what you're doing, and where does Barn Geek come from? <laughs> Sure, yeah. I uh, started out uh, logging when I was 18 years old, fresh out of high school. So I um, started logging with my uncle and uh, kind of learned by the School of Hard Knocks. And uh, um, from there I went into uh, operating my own tree service. Uh, and so, and then uh, after that I started uh, this uh business called Michigan Reclaim Lumber where we tore down old barns and uh, <clears throat> recycled the wood and uh, <clears throat> looking at a few of these old barns I, I kind of got the idea that uh, it, it was a shame to see them go um, it was like we're losing a little bit of our heritage so I uh, I kind of made a switch and went into making a replica kit um, that, that, that is modeled after the old barns <clears throat> To kind of uh, 
to kind of rebuild a little bit of that heritage. Um, so, but uh, <clears throat> other than that, oh, as far as where Barn Geek came from, um, uh, my uh, my wife came up with that one. She says, I, I, every time we drove down the road, I, I'd always turn my head and look at old barns and that type of thing. So she says, you're such a barn geek. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's where that came from. Yeah. Very very cool. Um, so we're going to talk about timbering and logging and stuff like that today. And uh, you know, to me, the first thing we have to talk about when we're going to and when we start talking about firing up a chainsaw is safety. Uh, I I have a rule. I'm sure you have a lot more rules than me since you did it professionally. But my rule is as long as the saw is running, there's two hands on it at all times because I can't cut one hand or the other hand if they're both touching the right part of the saw. My my father-in-law uh, violated that rule with a small electric chainsaw. It wasn't even under power. It was just a chain still running after he let go and nearly took the tops of two fingers off. And it was a pretty serious injury. And fortunately, it was like in his front yard and there was lots of help available. Um, but some of the work we could be doing would be in a little bit uh, less uh, accessible places for help. And a chainsaw is a serious tool. So what are some of the dangers of operating a chainsaw, and what should folks be aware of to work safely uh, in a forest, be it urban or otherwise? Yeah, well, that's a good question, um, and 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 it, that rule that you have is a very good one. Um, chainsaws can be can be extremely dangerous, and, uh, and and that's one of the things that that is the biggest danger is people, uh, uh, you know, they they may be operating a chainsaw for a while, and they they get to get to where they're used to it. And they become complacent, and they don't think about what that what that chainsaw chain can do to to their flesh. <clears throat> so they start um, taking shortcuts, like you know, only operating with one hand, or or um, uh, making a trying to work over their head, or um, you know, just taking different risks that they they shouldn't normally take. So that's the biggest danger, um, and. <clears throat> The second biggest danger is not even really to do with a chainsaw so much as it is um, the, the sheer force of what they're releasing with that saw, the power of that tree, um, if they're take, cutting a tree down or if they're cutting a limb off. Um, if that does something that they're not anticipating, um, it can really, <clears throat> really cause serious in- injury. So... Um, before we get too much into that, though, I was going to talk a little bit about uh, the safety gear that you need to use when you when you when you go out into the woods. Um, typically, a logger will wear something like chainsaw chaps, um, and what those are is uh, <clears throat> they're a thicker material, and and exactly what they're they they sound like they're chaps, so they they go on just like chaps do, regular chaps, and uh, they're designed. They're not a not a suit of armor. They're designed more of a, um, a catch. So if the chainsaw catches that material, the material bunches up and, and stops the chain. So if you you know if you go to cut on a chainsaw chap full bore with a saw, it'll still cut through. But uh, just so people are aware of that, um, <clears throat> one of the best pieces of safety gear is uh, is a helmet. <clears throat> and it's not only it's not only a good piece of safety equipment, but it's a, it works as well as a tool um, because a lot of them include a, a face shield that is a screen. <clears throat> so if you're cutting down a tree and you've got chips flying at you, 
um, you can actually see what you're doing because that, that shield is, is deflecting those chips and uh, so that you're able to work more safely. They also include uh, earmuffs, um, which are essential. They, they don't only protect your hearing, but they keep the helmet on because there's a lot of a lot of jarring <laughs> that goes on in a logging operation, and a helmet can go flying pretty easily. So, but uh, <clears throat> but as far as uh, some of the common dangers that that people can come across in the woods, and these are more of um, uh, say uh, the most common dangers. I, I mean, I, we don't have time to cover everything today because it's it would take probably a six-hour show. But um, <clears throat> the biggest the biggest cause of injured injury while running a chainsaw is is just one simple thing: is people forget to engage that safety brake when they go to take a step. So they'll end up tripping and falling, and, and either falling on the saw itself or falling in the saw falling on them. <clears throat> so always remember to engage that safety brake anytime you take a, a step. Um, <clears throat> the second most, and this is what happens to loggers, loggers quite frequently. Um, we have what, what is called widow makers in the industry, <laughs> and, and it's quite literally, um, uh, they, uh, they, can be, they can jump out at you pretty surprisingly, um, and what it is is a uh, broken limb that's high up in the tree that you're about to cut down. What happens is when you start cutting on that tree with your chainsaw, that little bit of vibration sets that, that limb loose, and it can cut loose, and uh, you know, a several hundred-pound limb could come falling down directly. Of course, the only place it has to go is directly at the base of the tree where you're standing cutting the tree down. So you always want to look up um, before you start cutting and see if there's any uh, hang, like hanging limbs or any other obstructions in the way. Would you say a lot of people, especially those aren't that are very experienced, don't really get the scale of the size of what they're working on in their head sometimes? You look at a tree, and it seems like it's a pretty big tree, but it's not that big. And then you look up at a limb, and the limb that's way up in the canopy doesn't seem that big. But the, the 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 tonnage that's represented there sometimes is extreme. There's limbs that weigh as much as a small car that could come down on somebody like that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, not only that, but even a small limb can can make for a really bad day. Uh, I remember one time my my uncle and I went out to log, and he broke this rule. He did, I mean, he, either he broke it or he didn't see the limb. He started cutting a tree down, and a limb probably about the size of Oh, I would say uh, it's about an inch in diameter, about the size of a uh, hammer handle or something like yeah. that. Not not very big. Came down on top of his helmet and uh, knocked him right out. I mean, it was he was he was out for the day. Uh, yeah, mass times acceleration equals force, and it doesn't have to be a lot of mass if you have a lot of acceleration. So, right, the higher it is, the further it falls, and the more acceleration you get. Exactly, absolutely. So that is uh, definitely something to be looking out for, and it's the number one cause of, or not the number one cause, but one of the high causes of injuries. So, what um, I've seen a lot of people do is get a tree where you know you drop it and it doesn't drop clean and it's up on the stump. And there's a lot of techniques that guys like you that do this for a living have to fix that problem. Mm -hmm. um, 
I have found for a lot of amateurs, one of the smartest things you can have with you is a come along. Yeah. Uh, and get some distance and use come along to pull that damn thing off the stump. I know for a production logger, that's too much time and there's, there's techniques to do it. But I think if you're not really well versed in those techniques, I, I know that plenty of people have been hurt trying to rectify that problem. Yeah. 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 yeah never yeah. try to cut that situation out. There's just too many things that can go wrong. Even, uh, even a professional logger, usually what we would do is we would hook up the skitter, which is a the tractor-sized machine with a winch on it, and to the bus, to the butt of the tree, and just, uh, pull it down off the stump, which is the same idea with the winch, with the come along. <clears throat> so, um, but yeah, always, even if you use your pickup and a chain, uh, something that's hung up like that, uh, always pull it down before you, uh, <clears throat> before you, uh, go to try cutting on it relieve that that tension that's that's the main focus of what you're trying to do so when, when i was at ben fox we had a chainsaw guy that does it for a living kind of like you come to uh talk to us about safety and using a chainsaw and it was great to be at a permaculture class where we actually cut a tree down that was that was yeah. awesome yeah. <laughs> but uh one of the things he said is always clear for yourself at least two paths away from the tree if it doesn't follow the direction that you think it's going to fall. Yes. Don't clear one because it might fall there. Uh, and that's probably saved my ass since that since that very day, uh, dropping some trees in Arkansas, stuff that looked like there's no way this is not going to fall. It looks like it's leaning. It just looks like you can't mess this one up. And sometimes they just, you know, it's not the way it looks. Yes. Yes, yes absolutely. Um you want to, what you want to do is you want to plan out where that tree is falling. Um, say it's falling to the south or leaning to the south, and you want to fell it that way, okay? Um, we won't go into wedging or any of that right now. It's a little bit beyond this. But um, say it's leaning to the south, and, you, and that's where you're wedging or you're, you're notching it to, to fall. Um, you, want a, you want a direct path either to the east or west or east, uh, northeast or northwest. Um, you want those four options are your best options because you don't want to go directly behind the tree because then you can get injured by the tree. Say the tree starts to come over and catches another tree, and what and this happens a lot in the woods. Um, it, it catches that other tree and then shoots that that, that breaks that that hinge that you've got on the stump holding the stump to the to the to the tree, and um, and then that sends that butt of the log pushing out towards you like a like a doze, bulldozer going 100 miles an hour so you want to be you want to do you want a route that is not directly behind the tree but off to the left or right or slight angles from that is the ideal part of that so you know as we're talking about this stuff i you know i think when most people think of logging they think of guys in flannel shirts out in the middle of the big woods dropping down ancient trees and you know way out in the middle of nowhere but you do something called urban logging right um which i think would provide some unique challenges i mean if a tree falls where you don't really want it to in the woods it's you know, generally it can be a safety issue or it can be a pain in the butt, but it's not really a catastrophe. If you, you drop an urban log in the wrong place, it can be a, a major insurance claim. But, you know, yeah. that aside, what what exactly is urban logging? Well, urban logging is uh, it's a relatively new industry um, that is made possible by uh, portable band sawmills. Um, 
And a portable bandsaw mill <clears throat> is basically something you can hook behind a truck, take out to the job site, and then uh, <clears throat> load the log on to the sawmill itself. So you're taking the sawmill to the job to the log rather than taking the log to the mill because you know it's it's difficult to work around urban settings with uh, large logging equipment. So uh, you're you're taking a smaller mill <clears throat> out to the log. And the biggest advantage of this, these mills um, is that the blades that they run on uh, are only are less than twenty bucks a piece. So, mm. so with the with a with the bigger sawmills, with the big circle saw, the traditional ones that you see, uh, those blades can be anywhere from three hundred to a thousand or more dollars per blade. And uh, so the big mills, they don't want to run urban trees through the mills because you know it could have big railroad spikes and horseshoes, and you just don't know what might be in that tree besides nails. <laughs> And uh, you hit one of those uh, with a, one of those expensive blades, and it can make for a really bad day. So, um, <clears throat> but with pieces the, of clothesline wire that the tree's grown around. I mean, yeah, you have no idea what's in a tree from an urban environment. Exactly, exactly. So, but with the bandsaw, if you hit that with the and it doesn't break the blade, you can even still sharpen that blade, and it only costs like six bucks to sharpen the blade. So. <clears throat> So it really opens up a lot of opportunities with that wood. And it's a great thing, too, because according to the uh, U.S. Forest Service, um, if uh, if all the trees in the U.S. were processed into lumber that, that, were, that came from an inver- urban environment, it would result in 3.8 billion board feet of sustainable lumber per year, <clears throat> which is, for me, even as a logger, that's, a phenomenal amount of material. Usually in your lifetime, you know, a logger cut maybe cut a million board feet, you know? Sure. We're talking about 3.8 billion. And uh, that is enough, I've figured it out, that is enough lumber to build 292,000 homes every year, according to uh, uh, using about approximately 14,000 board feet per home. So it really can make a big difference in... Uh, um, the sustainability of small or, or even large urban com- communities. Because a lot of times you're talking about trees that are going to come down regardless of what happens to them. Yes. They're, they've grown very large in an area where they're now a safety hazard. They have to come. My, my father-in-law had an oak that he wanted taken down. That I, I ended up calling a pro, and I'm like, I'm not doing that. Right. And I, I'm even pretty good at what I do, but I'm like, there's so much of a chance of this either going one way and taking out a power line, another way and taking out your house, another way and taking out a... A uh, the neighbor's house. There's only one place this thing can be dropped, so we got a, a professional company to come in and do it. But you know that one tree would have made a lot of lumber. I, sure. I don't know what they did to it. It was a very large oak, but it was top. It had pieces on the top that were dying, and it was very close to the house. It was one of those ones they saved that they probably shouldn't have when they put the house in, and it had to come down. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. and that is the situation with a lot of these trees. Uh, uh, they're just got to the point where they're. They're so big, and, and uh, um, a lot of a lot of trees that have been planted in, in these towns across America are, are getting to their full maturity right now. So it's 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 becoming quite a problem with dealing with because a city is not 
really the native environment for a tree to grow in. So what it does is that in, in a woods, around other trees, a tree will grow straight and tall. <clears throat> and so it can live several hundred years because it's stronger that way. It's stronger because of the other trees around it. Where, where a tree out in the, uh, in the open or in a city type environment will grow up and then it'll grow out a long ways. Uh, you've probably seen live oaks that do that a lot. Mm-hmm. They'll grow out quite long. And if they're trees like a live oak, that particular species is adapted to do that anyway. So, so that one's fine. But for up here in the Northwest, we have a lot of maples and, uh, oaks and that, you know, like red oak and white oak. And those are trees that have been adapted to, they've evolved to, uh, to grow in a woods for the most part. So when they spread out wide like that, they, they, they have stresses that, uh, that, uh, um, <clears throat> that can take those limbs down. So their canopy, it gets excessive. You know, I've seen some of these trees, 80, 90 foot canopies, you know, yeah. and that's, it, it's a tree that maybe even if it was supposed to have a canopy that wide, by the time it did, it was all supposed to be several hundred feet tall. Right. And, and, but you've got a tree with that kind of canopy, but the tree's only 75 feet tall. Right, right, and, and uh, you, you, you're right, and then it gets into these tight situations where it starts seeking light, and it grows disproportionately to one side, things like that. You're saying, yes, yeah, 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 absolutely. And yeah. Uh, so, so when the trees get to this point, or like here in Michigan, we've got uh, ash borer problem. So all of our ash trees are like dying. So, so there's a lot of ash trees in, in the cities that just need to come down because they're dead. Um, so that's another situation where we would use. Ash tree that is uh, uh, maybe not marketable to a sawmill because they can't move it. There, there's restrictions on um, on that on that wood because you don't uh. want to spread the ash borer around. So you you, you got to cut the tree right there and dispose of it properly. But a sawmill, a small sawmill can can come in and slab that tree up into at least a cant. And as long as they get the bark layer and the cadmium layer off that tree. That's where the the ash borer is ten, tends to be. So now they get to the point where they can move that lumber <clears throat> as it's processed. So um, <clears throat> and then of course the slab wood is all chipped up, and and, so, and that is considered uh, processed enough to to be rid of the ash borer infestation. Mm. So that's and, and a I, big problem too. By the way, I was just in Montana; they have yeah. that problem there. Right. So you have in Michigan, they have it in Montana. That means it's pretty much everywhere in between. I think that's um, that's a big part of like trees becoming in vogue for a while, where everybody's like, "Oh, that's a pretty tree," and everybody plants one, yeah. and you end up basically with a clumpy monocrop across the whole country, and one pest ends up taking them all out. Right, right. Yeah, that is a problem. Um, and also out out west, they have um, uh, the. Uh, um, Pine beetle, I think, is what it's called. Mm-hmm. That, that kills the, uh, the, the ponderosa pine, I believe. And so you have a lot of uh, issues with that. A lot of trees that need to be harvested and used um, for the for uh, um, you know local use. Uh, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to to cut down trees that, that are perfectly good and and, and saw and not saw them up into lumber. <laughs> you know, that could make perfect perfectly good lumber. Um, the, uh, yeah, I got one for you. As a logger, you'll appreciate the the danger this represents. I was at a Rocky Mountain National two years ago, mm-hmm. and there is a stand of I would say a hundred acres or more of lodgepole pine 
right. huge, beautiful lumber timber trees. Yeah. All dead. Uh, Standing, and they look like, you know, Christmas trees in February. Right. Right? Just ready, I mean, matchsticks. Yeah. But yeah. huge matchsticks. This whole one is on the one north face of this mountain. And I was talking to the tour guide, and I said, why don't they log those out and, and you know, harvest them? Mm-hmm. And he said, because it's the national park, and they don't want to touch anything. And I'm going, if, if one match hits that, yeah. it will burn not just that. The, the, the fire that will create will just burn up the whole damn park. Right, and right. you know the dry part of the year, but but the the environmental weenies refuse to remove them, even though they're dead. And I'm going. There's so many things wrong with that. The, the one we could harvest the resource too. They could everything that's not, too small to use could just be left on site to rot on the ground where it belongs. Yeah. And, and and three, every single one of those trees removed is a piece of timber that doesn't have to be cut somewhere else where something's still alive. Right. Right. I know that's an aside, but you just made me think of it with you know this talk of these trees that are dying from pests, yeah. uh, and those pine beetles. The, the beetle doesn't even kill it. The beetle goes in and then seals up the tree, or actually leaves and spreads a fungus, and then the tree heals the hole with sap, and then that seals the fungus, and then the fungus kills the tree. Uh, Unintended yeah. consequences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the trees, like in, in that example. Uh, those, those could be cut down by a, a really by a big sawmill and and, re, and utilized. But what happens a lot of times, at least here in my area of the country, um, those trees get discarded. Yeah. And uh, we buy, we go to Home Depot or a big box store, and we buy lumber that's been shipped in eighteen hundred miles from the northwest corner of British Columbia, and uh, you know because well. Long story Long short, the lumber's being subsidized. But <laughs> the uh, <laughs> so we're using lumber that's uh, 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 coated with oil, so to speak. So it's been shipped in from so many miles away, and disposing of perfectly good, some in a lot of cases better material um, because of certain regulations. Um, because you can't, as a sawmill owner, you can't, say, say if you're a small sawmill owner, you can't cut two-by-fours, uh, rough cut, and build a house out of it because it has to be stamped in it. And in order to, um, in order to have that stamp, that stamp, you have to be uh, accredited by an approved uh, organization. It's an ALSC or ASDL. Anyway, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's bullshit. It's, let's just call it what it is. It's a bunch of bureaucratic bullshit you have to do. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And the the great thing about it is, though, that we can um, we can get past all of that because, um, and, and I'll get into that a little bit later. But um, let's just get back to the American Softwood Lumber Standard for a little bit. The, that uh, grading stamp um, costs, say, say if you're a small sawmill owner and you say, okay, I'll go ahead and get the stamp. Well, the membership dues in order to be a part of the organization to get the stamp costs 250 to $450 per week. 
itself for a small sawmill owner, it makes it really cost prohibitive to to produce structural lumber. <clears throat> I mean, you can produce all the lumber for trim or cabinets that you want, and it doesn't have to have that stamp on it. But if you want the structural lumber, it has to have that grade stamp that was set up by the uh, American Softwood Lumber Standard, which is a group of um, uh, the big timbermen like, uh, oh, Georgia Pacific, that kind of company, originally started this back in the 20s or 30s or something, um, and uh, <clears throat> and then uh, perpetuated that on forward, ended up building or ended up drafting a uh, a building code that they submitted to different uh, counties, um, and then uh, started spreading that code around and, and having them the, the counties adopt the code because from the county's point of view, you know, you don't know what, you know, but county government doesn't know, you know, what regulations to have and how to grade lumber and, and that type of thing for building code. So they just rely on the experts <laughs> and, yeah. and to write the code for them. So. Let, let, me, let me just break in there for a second and explain something to people. I think it's very important for folks to understand. Every standards industry standards body that exists exists to set the standards so that they can control them and sell into the market that they control. When I was in the telecommunications industry, there was an entire standards board set up around how test equipment had to perform and how you tested and what you tested against. And every members of that a member of that standards board worked for one of the two or three large companies in the in the industry. Right. And the entire purpose of that standards board was to ensure that it was very difficult for a competitor mm-hmm. to catch up to the established companies. Right. It wasn't to make sure that the customer got the best product. Mm-hmm. It was to further the agenda of the company itself. And I would tell you that if not all, 99% of all standards boards, like you're describing, exist for the purpose of the big players in the industry. Exactly. Yep. yep. That's exactly right. Um, <clears throat> but there's a light at the end of the tunnel with, with the lumber. Cool. Um, yeah. There's uh, Up in Wisconsin, they've set a precedent. Um, they have what is called the uh, Wisconsin Local Lumber Use Stamp. Okay. Um, because the um, <clears throat> the building code says, and I've got the quote here, sawn lumber used for load-supporting purposes, including end-jointed or edge-glued lumber, machine-stress-rated or machine-evaluated lumber, shall be identified by the grade mark of a lumber grading or inspection agency that has been approved by an accreditation body that complies with DOCPS 20, which is American Software Lumber Standard, or equivalent. The key is those two words at the end, or equivalent. So, what the the guy the the government basically this was the uh, a senator or something in, in Wisconsin did was they set up a stamp standard that they could use and teach to guys um, so that they could stamp their own locally produced lumber. Um, they take a class, I think it's a day or two long, cost them a couple hundred dollars. Um, and that's all they have to do. They oh wow! Take the class and figure out, you know, this is, you know, this is uh, this is how you grade lumber. This is how you grade structural lumber. This is what you look for, and that type of thing, which really doesn't take very long to learn that. <clears throat> and then they have their own stamp that they can say, yes, this is stamped um, number two 
uh, structural grade lumber, um, and it is approved to use in homes in that area. <clears throat> now they have some restrictions on that. You can't you can't sell that. You have to sell directly to the customer. Consumer. Okay. So you can't you can't like stamp it and then ship it. So they've managed to continue to protect their retail space. Right. Right. And they've they've said we'll throw in the towel on the direct consumer market because it's five percent of the total market or something like that. Right. Right. Ah. Uh, so that is one way around this. Um, but there is another way that uh, that we don't have to go through legislation, and that is the the ultimate authority on whether you can build a a home out of rough cut rough cut lumber is your local building department. So you can go to your building department and say, well, for example, uh, through the 80s and 90s, a lot of people, a lot of high-end uh, homes were built as a log home. That Those logs really can't be graded in the way that uh, a 2x4 can be graded. See, So the, the um, building departments set up a, a little way around that grading regulation so that they could approve because they want, I mean, they want these big fancy log homes to go up in their neighborhoods because that makes tax revenue go up and they can sell building permits and, you know, the whole, the whole, the whole game. But, uh, so, so they were able to allow people to build log cabins and, uh, <clears throat> because of that, we can now build timber frame homes. And, and that type of thing, and uh, um, we don't need to we don't need to worry about having a, a physical stamp on the lumber. But what we do is we put on the plans that uh, this, this timber was graded number two um, by a you know by the sawmills grader, with and and that is good enough for the most building departments. Some building departments. Are still sticklers, and they and they want to keep that, you know, regulation and and shit in there. But uh, um, most building departments, a lot of building inspectors can usurp, I guess, would be the right word, that particular paragraph in in the building code <clears throat> for special uses like that. Very cool. Um... And, and so it, that pretty much gets you into a point where you can use rough cut lumber locally to build a regular house, then, right? Um, yeah, the it would be it would look like a regular house on the outside, but you can build a um, say you wanted to build a, 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 tr- a conventional home out of two by four, two by six stud frame. Um, Normally, you're not going to get around that, with with a unless you're in a really rural area and the and the building department is pretty lax. That you normally you're not going to get around that unless you build a special type of building like a log home or a timber frame type building. So you 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 have a different type of structure that that the lumber for it is not normally graded anyway. Okay. So, um, so the building department will allow you, in a lot of cases. I'm not going to say this is across the country this way, but we've had in our business we've had because this is what we do. 
we've had very little trouble with building departments going ahead and saying, yes, this is just fine, go ahead and build it, because they do have that authority to do it, because it was the local, the, the international building code is um, basically, it's, it's a code that was written and then submitted to the county governments. So the only involvement is at the county level for as far as the authorities go. Um, so that gives them the authority to change it if they want to. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so that way, um, if you've had a, if you have a, a plan that shows a nice sketch of a nice building that, that's going to bring tax value up, that's going to incentivize them to approve that plan and allow you to build a building that um, that has just perfectly fine lumber, but is a little bit different. You know, it's, it's built with post and beam construction or log type construction um, to get around that. You know, I, I just said yesterday on the show that if you have a problem in society that you're trying to solve, the first thing you'll believe is that the main impediment to your progress is funding, money. Right. But if somebody gives you money or you find a way to do it without money, you will quickly find the biggest impediment to your progress is government. Yeah. So here you have a situation where what we're trying to do is avoid cutting down forests, Mm -hmm. utilize a local resource, and... We can do it, but we have to bend all over. We can't do a production model home. We've got to do like a timber. Fr- and not that that's not maybe a good idea anyway. It's just right, that right. like you, you just can't. You've got to go outside of the lines to even enact a common sense solution. Because God forbid somebody use, you know, I don't know, oak to build a home with today. Because we all know that a rapidly growing pine tree in a pine farm is much stronger than a piece of oak, Right. Right. I mean, it, it's it, it only a bureaucrat could convince themselves that you're safer building a house out of a, a pine tree that was had accelerated growth than an old piece of oak or an old piece of ash or an old piece of maple. I mean, these the, the, if you've ever been into a house that was built from oak in the 1800s and gone down to where the floor joists are and tried to put a nail in one, mm-hmm. good luck. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had a, a house like that in Pennsylvania. We used to hang deer from those joists. Mm-hmm. And to get a nail into them so that you could hang the deer up by their, their, their Achilles tendons when you were skinning them and butchering them, right. we had to use those nails that look like a peg that you can drive into concrete. That was the only thing that would go into that oak, yeah. and that oak had been there since 1880. Right. I, I want to see any piece of pine do that, any piece of pine ever. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, and um, that wood is every much every much as good, if not better, than than the two by four. I mean, you've seen some of the two by fours you go to the the lumber yard and buy. It's like you got to sort through half the stack to get to get something that's you think might <laughs> support the weight that you're trying to support. You know, uh, it's just uh, and where you can go to a local sawmill and pick out that piece of wood, and it might not have a knot in it. Uh, Anywhere because it's uh, from the butt of the tree. See, see, most of the two by fours that they produce are, are made out of really small parts of the tree, the the, the, the very top, um, and, and that's the part that has the most limbs in it. So it's going to have the most knots, you know. So uh, they're trying to use as much of that piece of wood as possible, which is a good thing. But you know, 
it makes for pretty low-grade lumber. And because they control the regulations on the stamp, they can get away with that. So, but, uh, <clears throat> so how, how do people kind of get started with this process? Let's say you, you want to use local lumber like this. Um, how do you find someone that can supply it, or how do you find someone maybe that you can uh, timber out stuff for you? Where do you begin with it? Well, um, that is it's a little more difficult than opening the phone book um, and, and looking in the yellow pages because typically your small sawmills are not normally listed in the yellow pages or the phone book. Um, but if you have a farmer in your area, that uh, uh, uses because a lot of time farmers will build hay wagons and and all sorts of things out of out of rough cut lumber that you don't need structural you know grade lumber for, and they'll know exactly where these sawmills are. A lot of Amish communities have built uh, uh, sawmills. Usually, any Amish community that you can find will have at least one sawmill um, in that community. Um, the uh, <clears throat> another good way to find them is. Uh, uh, if you go online, uh, there's a website called woodplanet.com. There's a lot of uh, sawmills listed on there. Uh, typically, though, if you submit a, uh, a bid on there, uh, their prices are going to be a little higher than, than you would, what you could find locally. Um, and if all else fails, uh, you can always just put an ad in the paper and say, hey, look, I'm looking for rough cut lumber. You know, does anybody have any? Or on, in Craigslist. A lot of times uh, sawmills will advertise on Craigslist and say, we're looking for, um, you know, a certain species of tree, you know, to, to cut for lumber. And that would be a good place to call and find out, you know, what they have available um, and that type of thing. So uh, <clears throat> there's a few ways to find rough cut lumber that way. Also, on uh, one of the major portable sawmill manufacturers, uh, Woodmiser has a uh, page on their website that lists whoever uh, whoever their past customers wanted to be listed as as uh, sawmill owners across the country. So if you go through there, you can sort by state, find your uh, find your state and your area, and you'll usually find at least a half a dozen sawmills within one county. Depending on where you are, I mean, if there's not, if you live in the desert, there's probably not going to be a lot of sawmills around. Sure, but uh, you know, um, you can usually find them maybe maybe a state away. You know, if if it comes down to that, if you know, if you're in Arizona, you might find some in Colorado, that kind of thing. But um, <clears throat> so that's how you find those. What about? I mean, it's it's probably a pretty good option if you have a property with with your own timber on it to consider hiring someone to come out and timber out your own timber for you for your own use. Yes, absolutely, um, and that's uh, uh, a good way to use what you the resources that you have. I, I mean, that's that's as low footprint as you can get. Just like growing food in your backyard, you're growing trees in your back forest. That, that you can use to build your own home. Um, and uh, if you're doing that, um, it, it'd be good, it'd be a good idea to start with a good plan um, that, uh, that that gives you, you know, these are, these are how many pieces of 2x6s you need, these are how many pieces of 6x6s you need, that kind of thing, so that you can just hand that to the sawmill owner and say, this is what I need for my project. 
um, this is exactly what I'll need to, to use to build, and he can go out and cut that for you and have it ready to go. Um, so when you start building, you have everything that you need all ready to go. I, I, I want to point out, like, one of the places where I saw this done and how it can be economically advantageous as well. Um, ben Falk, at his place in Hull Systems Design, uh, built his studio, and it's a gorgeous, it's all done from rough-cut lumber. Every piece of lumber that it was built with is from on-site. Yeah. And I said, did this save you money? And he said, it depends on how you mean. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, had I gone out and bought spruce right, or pine and built this from typical wood that would be available in the mass market, I probably didn't save a dime. Right. If I had gone out and bought timber of this quality and these species and this mixed timber environment and this beauty that was created, it would have cost an ever-loving fortune. I could have never afforded to build it and make it like this yeah. if I'd got timber of this quality from somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. It's like it's like comparing uh, um, a Buick with a Cadillac. <laughs> you know, you can, yeah. Of course, you could have got a Buick uh, cheaper, but uh, it wouldn't be this nice. <laughs> so, yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and that and that helps a lot too if you've got a, a beautiful building. That you're presenting to the building department, they're gonna they're gonna be a mo- lot more likely to say, yeah, go ahead, you know, do what you need to do. This plan is fine. Um, <clears throat> go ahead and build it. You know, it'll bring in, increase your tax value, and it'll improve the whole neighborhood. So, I think there's opportunities to use this type of lumber to do things that you know, in many places, you don't even need a permit for. It's one thing to build a house, but. Um, the guy can't think of his name now. An older guy that does uh, that that show, that reality show on Glenn Beck's network. He did a a two part pilot called Apocalypse PA. Frank something. Um, I've had him on the show. Okay. They're up in Pennsylvania, and they had some trees that they could, you know, basically decided that it was time for them to come out. Some just a you know unshaded garden spot and all on their their three acres. And they had a a company that does this come out, cut them down, and cut them all. He said, basically, make me the best board lumber you can out of it. You know, get me the most you can out of it. And just stacked it all for them and went away, and they paid them for that. And they used it, like, to build an outdoor kitchen. They used it to build a really awesome barn. They So those type of things, since they were detached from the house, yeah. and because they don't live in, you know, Illinois or something right. stupid like that, there's no permit. It's a shed. It's a, It's an outdoor space. It's a deck. And, and those types of things, now you're really saving on lumber from being trucked in because, you know, again, trees are going to come down anyway, and then right. you don't have to deal with a bureaucrat. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it, even if you're building something as simple as a chicken tractor, you know, um, go to the sawmill. Uh, a lot of times they'll have some leftover pieces laying there. They'll give you for a, a steel, you know, uh, that might not be up to standard or or even their slab wood. A lot of times when you cut a log, you'll have one or two boards that are half-inch thick, three-quarters of an inch thick, something like that, that they can't sell because they got to have four-quarter. They have an inch and an eighth, inch and a quarter um, lumber to start with. Um, so, you know, they'll usually you can get a load of that slab wood for 20 bucks, you know, on your pickup. <laughs> So, um, and it's funny that you you talk about Chicago or Illinois there. Um, we actually have a barn that's out of rough cut lumber in Chicago. <laughs> 
so it is possible in, in other jurisdictions in, in some of those more strict areas. You just it's just a matter of presenting it in the right way. So. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I'm sorry about that sound. I don't know what the hell that is. Um, let me try to stop that. <laughs> Live podcasting, folks. Um, anyway, what do, what do you see as the future for urban logging? Um, it really could be what we really need, and this is what uh, um, I think there's a, a very good market out there for it, for the for the product. Um, even if it's not structural lumber, even if it's uh, you know lumber for uh, coffee tables or, or, or furniture. Um, for flooring, for trim, uh, you know, for for a variety of different purposes that don't need to be structural. Um, what we really need is small sawmill owners that are willing to to um, uh, get a hold of some of this uh, uh, salvage salvageable logs and, and and saw it and uh, make it available for marketing uh, and, and market it to the to the mass public. Because um, normally you don't think. I mean, if you uh, if you want to build a project, you just hop in your truck and head down to the local lumberyard. You don't think about you know calling a sawmill. It's not on your radar, uh, not on most people's radar to to just go down to the sawmill and and pick up pick up some wood. So really, what we need is two things: is it's more people producing the, the product and um, just awareness of, of of the fact that it's available. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, wh- wh- where do you see the most opportunity for someone that maybe wants to actually get in, get into this as a business? Do you? I mean, this is what you do, right? Do you? Do you think there's a lot of opportunity there? Yes, there is. Um, we only serve with our with our kits. We only serve uh, Michigan, um, just because shipping is. Um, you know, really cost prohibitive to ship a lot of lumber across the country, and it kind of goes against what we want to do anyway. So I would encourage people to go ahead and and, and take a a plan like the like we have available on our website. Um, you can download that plan and uh, go ahead and market those buildings, those barns, as um, you know your own product, because uh, that way more of this local lumber can be used. Um, I mean, we, we've got plans on there from, you know, as small as a chicken coop all the way up to very large-sized barns. And, and usually on an agricultural building like that, in, in a lot of jurisdictions, um, they don't require as much permitting or even a permit at all in some cases. So um, that makes it a lot easier to you know, if you're building an agricultural type building, to go ahead and and use some local lumber, and then if you've got a product that you can point to a website and say, look at this nice barn, you can sell that to a customer, and and, and uh, say we can do this for you. We can use your lumber out of your woods, cut it for you, and, and build this pro- this nice beautiful barn right in your backyard out of your own wood. I know we've kind of covered this, but could you speak kind of to the effect where people are like, but we're cutting down these trees. Like, these are these big, beautiful trees, and we're, we're, we're timbering them out. Shouldn't we be saving them? Well, I think the biggest, uh, the biggest positive point 
um, for building something out of wood is the fact that every piece of wood that you put into that house is carbon that is um, is not going to go into the atmosphere. If that tree fell down in the forest, it would rot and it would become carbon, you know, some carbon in the soil, but a lot of it would be released in the air. So if, if you want to sequester carbon, one of the best ways is to preserve the wood by building something out of it. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Or, um, and another, I, and another point is, a lot of, if you, if you can control in your own backyard how the, the practices that are used to, to harvest that timber, you can, um, you know, make sure that it's, it's done in such a way that, uh, the wood is, or the, the trees are harvested so that they, 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 they make the, the least amount of impact on the land when they're cut. Um, because uh, there's some, you know, there's some log- logging operations out there that'll just, you know, slash everything down. Don't really care about the saplings or anything. But you can, you can absolutely cut up woods. And when you get done, this is how I was taught with by my uncle. He told me <clears throat> when I first started there, he said, "We we are not here to decimate this woods because we want to come back." in 10, 15 years and cut it again. You know, so we want to go in here and we want to select this certain trees and we want to start in the back so that we don't, you know, run over too much saplings and, and harvest them carefully so as to do as little damage as possible. And he even had a skitter that he built himself because he couldn't get a light enough machine that would be low enough impact um, to uh, to do the logging like he wanted to, so um, so that that's you know that's a little bit of my history too. Um, that's why I'm I'm so passionate about um, using some urban wood and and and, harv- and harvesting logs in a uh, sustainable manner. Very very cool, and I, I think that's something people do need to understand. And there, as we were talking about earlier, there are a lot of places where there are trees that just need to come out. Um, and you know, there's the old axiom for every tree you cut, plant two. Right. So there are trees that reach the, I mean, everything that we plant has an eventual yield. Right. And some trees yield mostly apples or pecans or pears, but even those trees eventually reach a point where they've gone past climax and are into the decline. And it's time for those trees to be replaced. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and that's the same case with with an oak tree in the woods. Um, it gets to a certain point, and all of them start getting a, a hole in, inside. Um, they start to die from the inside. They can be pretty alive on the outside, they appear that way, but uh, a strong wind can come by and just knock them right over because they they've got a, a rotten rotten core. Um, and, and a professional logger can look at a tree and know, you know, this tree has a hole in it. Uh, this tree is damaged to a point where it's going to be a hazard, you know. Um, you know, this tree is, uh, you know, if I cut this tree down, it's going to stimulate other trees to grow in its place. You know, it's going to have, it's going to open up the canopy so that uh, so that younger trees can, uh, can be invigorated and start growing. Um, there's a lot of times when you, when you log a, a woods like that, you get a, a, a sudden burst of, of growth, and um, the wildlife can take advantage of that because they have a lot of 
a lot more food available to them that's down at their level. And so, um, so that's another positive um, uh, point on, on sustainable logging. You know, if, if, and if you've got a small lot like that, a lot of times um, getting a, a small crew to come in um, is, is going to be way more beneficial than, than calling up the big company. And, and they're not going to send somebody, you know, they're not going to send a logger out to cut one load of logs um, mm-hmm. out of one job site. But They want a clear cut. Right, right, right. Yeah, so, um, and, and, and that's not what we're interested in doing. Uh, we, don't want a des- we don't want a desolate piece of property. We want something that's going to continue to regrow and produce timber for hundreds and thousands of years down the road. And to do that, we have to start planning our, our forest management differently. It's not just about cutting out things at the right time. It's also about planting things at the right time. So we really shouldn't be cutting out 10 trees and planting 20 trees. We should have planted those 20 trees be- long before we cut those 10. Right. Um, because we create, like you're saying, those openings, those glades. And it's in those glades that a lot of times what we call the subcanopy isn't really a subcanopy species. It's a canopy species, right. and it's just waiting. Right, right. Because a forest, even t- untouched by human hands, grows on a fallen forest. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's death begats life. So we can either be good stewards of that. And to me, I think that by utilizing a lot of these resources like you guys are doing in the urban landscape and the suburban landscape, we're able to take the pressure off of those forest systems and not, not take anything from them, but take less from them and not let's just mine out 40 acres and then plant it with pine seedlings and do it again in 15 years and do it again in 15 years and do it again in 15 years. Right, right. And because we're not, we're not farming trees. They call it tree farming. That's not tree farming. That's tree mining. Yeah. Farming is a regenerative process and mining is a degenerative process. Right, right. Well, it, it, it basically to, to speak in permaculture terms, it's a chop and drop on a large mm-hmm. scale. Yeah. Um, you're, you're, you're taking, the nutrients that the tree has taken up, you're harvesting the, the, the fruit, which is the trunk of the tree, and then you're dropping the, the leavings um, for the for the new trees to uh, to take up. So, absolutely, I, I think it, you know here is something that just came up recently. If you're familiar with Hugo culture, where we're burying old wood, yeah, growing on top of it. When you start chopping and dropping, or you start cutting certain trees and harvesting them. People don't think of it this way, but what you're actually doing is hugel culture. Yeah. You mean tell me what the, the what do you think the tonnage of the root structure of a mature oak is once that oak's removed? Well, um, the a good rule of thumb to get a picture of the the root structure of a tree is to look at the canopy, and it's a it's about the same underground as it is above ground. So so you're you you've got all that mass. You know, in some cases it's smaller, but but it's it's a it's pretty much the same. Um, you've got basically equivalent of that mass in the ground that's going to start to um, you know soak up and hold that moisture, just like that hookah culture, and be a and be a uh, um, uh, an environment for for fungus to take take off, uh, mushrooms to to grow. And um, here in Michigan, we love our morale, so that's that's always a good thing. Yeah, I mean, basically, if you if you take out 20 tons of canopy, you've left 20 tons of root structure in the ground. You've just done 20 tons of hugel culture. Right. That's not a pass to do, you know, minor-style logging and clear-cutting. 
Right. It is an understanding of effective timber management and why it's not as degenerative as it might seem, even if we take away the majority of what's above the ground because we've left what's below the ground and we haven't completely denuded things. There's other trees still standing around there so that it gives it doesn't erode and it gives time for those next trees to come up. Absolutely. And whenever, you know, I go back to a, an old woods that's been logged um, sustainably like this, you can see, like, the raspberries will start growing over top of the, the, the tops, and, and then leaves will start collecting in, in that area, and pretty soon that starts breaking down, and, and it very quickly forms, it's just the natural kind of hugel culture, just by catching debris that's blowing across and turning it into uh, um, soil. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, 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 Sepp Halter didn't invent uh, hugo culture, neither did the Austrians or the Germans. The forest did. Right. I mean, I've, I've seen it over and over again. When you see trees that fall naturally as well, uh, they almost inevitably either end up perpendicular straight up and down a slope or on contour. Sooner or later, movement and, and flows and, and floodings and wind and all, and once they end up on contour, they become a dam, and all the organic matter builds up on them, and it just takes off from there. So I, I think what we need to understand when people get overly environmental here is that some of the best things we can do for the environment are not passive, they're active roles. Like a lot of this stuff, we screwed it up. Yeah. And just leaving it alone won't fix it. If you look at the places that we turned, you know, scrub forest desert into true desert, mm-hmm. you can leave it alone for a thousand years. It will still be, it will never go back to scrub forest unless we put it back to scrub forest. Or you look at places where we've taken out all the hardwoods and all the old species and we've replaced it with one crop of pine. Yes. In a thousand years, it'll be still pine dominated unless we change that. Yeah, it won't be all in straight rows, but it'll still be fine dominating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, hey, man, I had a great time with you on the air today. I'd like to say uh, thanks for coming on and introducing a completely new subject. We've we've actually never covered anything quite like this on TSP, and I, I think it was uh, uh, more than time uh, to, to do so. And uh, I also want to say thank you for the work that you're doing, um, because what you're doing is important. And... Uh, I mean, it's something that if, if if you don't do it, nobody else probably will either. At least in your 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 you know local area. So, thank you on on two counts: one for being a good steward of our resources, and two for sharing on uh, how to do that with others. Well, thank you, Jack. I, I appreciate coming on here, and uh, I say I've, I've listened to you for about a year and a half now. And uh, we, I did build my own horticulture mound out here with some of our slab wood, and that's doing well. And um, a lot of a lot of, there's just been many many things I've learned from your show that's uh, that's really helped improve my life and I want I want to say thank you for that. Well, and if there's someone in your area that wants to get in touch with you so that they can use your services, how would they best do that? Well, the be- the best thing to do is go to our website and that is uh, barngeek.com. It's b a r n g e e k, just like it sounds. dot com, um, <clears throat> and you can. Uh, Take a look at the stuff that we have on there. Uh, we we have kits available if you're in Michigan. But if you are are uh, you know thinking about getting into this business yourself, we also have plans available on there. So if, uh, you can download those plans um, and 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 start your own little mini uh, uh, business where you can market you know locally produced products uh, to uh, your local area. 
and also we have uh, I was formerly the uh, law, the logging guide for about.com if you want to learn more about urban forestry I did a three section interview with a, a, a lady in, in Ar- Ann Arbor that is, a, that is a, more of an authority than I am on the subject and there's a lot more details about that on there Well, very cool. And I'll make sure that I put links to all of those resources in the show notes for today's show. Um, for those of you guys that are out there wondering, well, what today's show number is, if you don't remember from the beginning of the episode, it'll be 1172. So we're speaking to you from the past because you found this show down the road. Uh, go by the, the survivalpodcast.com, plug in 1172 in the search box, hit search, and you might find a few other things, but you'll quickly find this episode and, uh, You can uh, get links to all those things if you didn't have time to uh, write them down. And again, Aaron, thank you for being with us on the Survival Podcast today. Thank you, Jack. And folks, with that, this has been Jack Spierko today, along with Aaron Esch, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Yeah.